Hosea. I want to introduce our series. We've been trying to work our way through uh, the minor prophets, and we've come to to Hosea. I was thankful in some ways for the Christmas break because it is maybe one of the most challenging of the minor prophets uh, altogether. Uh, this morning will be more more of an overview of that. Um, I want to read some of the text, but I want to try to give an overview of that as well. Um, but essentially, uh, it is a love story. Uh, in fact, the, the message title of the series will be Studies in Hosea, but the message title this morning will be A Scandalous Love. Uh, I asked Brian this morning in the song we sing occasionally, um, it has the line in it's the outrageous, uh, what was the word, Brian? The reckless love of God. Uh, I've read some articles and people had some issues with associating recklessness with God in any way. I get that. I certainly do. Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of saying the same sort of thing uh, we see unfolding in the book of Hosea. Uh, it was interesting to me the timing of this, though. Our last Sunday of Advent, we, our theme was love. You'll remember some of the verses we shared uh, from 1 John, God is love. Uh, behold, First John, John 3, behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Uh, but I want to read this morning uh, as an introduction, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we all know that as the love chapter and, and rightly, rightly so called. But I'm, the reason I'm reading this is as we're reading and thinking through the book of Hosea, I want you to, I want you to notice how the love demonstrated there uh, is, is so parallel or so consistent with what Paul says of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Just as a general matter, uh, matter we could all do well uh, to evaluate our love for one another, even our love for spouses, but our love for friends and fellow church members uh, by the standard that Paul gives us in chapter 13. But it begins with a section there, verse 1 and 3, uh, basically uh, setting aside every possible gift exercise without love. In fact, making it meaningless or effectiveless in some ways. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, all my possessions, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now listen to this. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And these, particularly in light of Hosea, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The beginning of verse 8 says, love never fails. So just by way of introduction, 
Uh, I want to read uh, verse chapter 1 of Hosea and maybe to verse 8 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Beriah during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she had weaned Larumah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Omni, and to your sisters, Rumah, contend with your mother, contend for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breast, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and stay, and stay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them who has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge her up with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her pass. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and new wine and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. I'll go, he goes on to speak of that in terms, but I want to concentrate really in the first introduction of that. Uh, real, one quick verse in chapter 3. The first couple of verses there, uh, this is after some things had unfolded. The Lord said to me, it comes to Hosea a second time and says, go again, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her, bought her, I believe he's speaking of Gomer here. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. 
and then he sets her aside as though to purify her. Essentially, I said it's a, it's a love story. It's a radical love. Uh, in fact, I think it's an overwhelming love as well. I, as I shared on that fourth Sunday of Advent, the love of God, I, I was moved in my own heart in contemplating the love of God. So, so I've already been working through Hosea and preparing to introduce this study. And I thought, what a demonstration uh, of the relentless, uh, severe, merciful love of God for his people. So it is a love story. It's a, it's a very unique love story. In fact, I was thinking to myself, if you made a movie out of this, uh, it, would be, it would be a masterful. It would probably be a hit in the theaters because there's so much, there's so much intrigue. There's so much, there's so much pain involved in this expression of love, as it were. I think people would flock to it because we all love a good story of redemption, right? We like movies this way. Well, this is unfolding as a love story. It's also, I want to just emphasize this. It is a story lived. It is a story lived. Hosea and Gomer and Jezreel and Loruhama and Loami are real persons living out the story. Now, I've done a lot of research and there are a lot of folks who, and, and me and I respect and, and I humbly differ with them to some degree, but they believe that this is a parable that it didn't really, Hosea didn't actually do this. And the more I read and the more I think about and contemplate the radical nature of God's love as manifest in Christ, the more I believe it is real. It is real. These are real people. Hosea was a real prophet. Gomer was a real prostitute. They had children uh, some believe, and I, I agree with them, that the third of the children that, that is mentioned in this passage may have been a child of adultery, that Gomer went out from, Homer, uh, from Hosea and had an adulterous affair and produced another child, which he named uh, prophet, prophetically, not my children, and it may have been a reality. He may have known it wasn't his children. These are real children, real people, real life. And I would add real love in all of its intensity. It is also both a tragic and a victorious story. It's tragic in, in the pain endured. I think of Hosea here and, and even to some degree uh, Goma herself. It's tragic in the dishonor shown to Hosea for his sacrificial love and his sacrificial taking to himself this woman of the night, as it's called. It is tragic in the compassion spurned, spurned by Gomer. And it is tragic in the misery that is evidence as you read through this. Not only the misery that Hosea must have felt as a man, but also the misery that, that Gomer felt having been delivered from that life and then having returned to it as, a, as though it had become so natural to her. And so there's misery abounding in this story of redemption and story of love. Misery. I mean, read the book. It doesn't take that long. And it just and it makes your heart ache for all the persons involved here. Mine particularly for Hosea. 
And I think this is important because I remember I had an experience not too many years ago to where the reality of, of loving, loving and being hated for loving came to bear on me in a way that I never understood before. In fact, I think somehow or another we think to, to love is to receive a reciprocal love or at least a respect or some admiration even if we don't get the love. And I realized in expressing a love for someone that they not only rejected that love, but they hated me for loving them. And so sometimes God brings about providentially circumstances that will make the prophet, in this case Hosea, feel the weightiness of, of the message that God is speaking to his people. Hosea, I believe, was just such a man. It is tragic. But it's also victorious in the relentless demonstration and pursuit of honoring the covenant. It is victorious in, in the redemptive effort that Hosea demonstrates here in this relationship. It is victorious in that it displays the faithfulness of Hosea to his covenant. By the way, the book never says that he puts her away. It doesn't, doesn't end with, and finally, at the end, Gomer was divorced. And, and, and Hosea lived mournfully but happily ever after. It doesn't end with her being divorced. It doesn't end with saying they had a successful marriage from that day forward. It just ends almost abruptly. And so it's victorious and it's an exceptional book in the faithfulness demonstrated here. It is victorious in that we get an inclination that she does eventually repent and she does turn back to her husband. So it's victorious in that it brings about re repentance. So it's a love story. It's a story lived. And it's both a tragic and a victorious story. But it is also the, sto the story of a distinguished man, a distinguished man Hosea was distinguished by his name. It really is a variant of Joshua. And we, we understand Joshua to be uh, related to Yeshua, to which we call in English Jesus. And so the name literally means God is salvation or God saves. So he's distinguished by his very name. In fact, his namesake ultimately would become the God incarnate who does save, Jesus, who has come to save his people. So he's distinguished in this narrative by the name God has given him. I assume he had the name all of his days from birth. And perhaps God, in fact, indeed, God did move his parents to name him that. And that seems relevant as well. Because his father's name was Beri, which has the, idea, uh, has the idea of a fountain, I understand. So he came from a family. So he's distinguished by name, but he was distinguished primarily in this book by his role. He was a prophet of God. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beri. In verse 2, it says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. So he was a prophet in the fullest sense. The word of God came to him and the word of God was spoken through him. The audience here is Israel, God's people, his bride as it were. 
That's the audience. That's, that's the persons who are to be hearing this prophecy. But he can't give this prophecy. He can't be the instrument through which God speaks to his people unless God speaks to him. He is a prophet in the fullest sense of the word. I love the, the word. I remember doing a word study years ago for prophet. I, I'm thinking it's something like Nabi or my pronunciation. But the idea had a, a bubbling up. And so God moved in the hearts of his prophets and, and brought to the surface the very words of God. And, and in that capacity, they became instruments by which God spoke to his people. Hebrews reminds us that God spoke to our fathers in days past through the prophets in diverse and many different ways. Through the prophets, God was speaking to the people and he is in this book as well. So that distinguishes Hosea. These are not by the way, just the observations of a man living in a, in a dark time, though prosperous, of Israel. This is not like us evaluating the current darkness of our day and speculating and opining in regards to what's wrong in the world. All, all of us do that. But this is a prophet of God. That sets him apart. That distinguishes him. In fact, it set him apart even among his contemporaries. I mean, even though Israel was wicked and had moved away and though they were prosperous and had gone to rest in their luxury and turn away from God, even then it seems as though they would at least held him aside to some degree. This is a prophet of God. You can say things in the corner, but don't, don't confront the prophet of God. That's not a wise thing to do for God may bring judgment upon us. So, so he had a certain amount of respect even as a prophet. So he's distinguished by that role. The word came to him and was spoken through him. He's distinguished as well by his faithfulness. Doing the kind of the research here, uh, I know Calvin commented on this and Matthew Henry as well. And I was doing some research, but they believed that his ministry spanned 60 years, perhaps even 70 years. One of the longest prophesying prophets of all the Old Testament. And by the way, one of the first to begin to speak about Assyrian captivity coming to Israel. After that, we have the other prophets, even Isaiah and other prophets speaking of that coming captivity. But the longevity of this prophet set him apart. He was set apart. He was distinguished by his faithfulness. This wasn't a man who was raised up in a moment, give a word, and then goes into obscurity. He prophesied to the kingdom of Israel throughout his life. Throughout his life, he didn't seem to be on an retirement plan. Not Hosea. 60, 70 years bringing the word of God, hearing the word of God, and bringing the word of God to the people. I can't even imagine. Calvin uh, really convicted me in his commentary, but he was talking about the longevity here of Hosea. And he says, we, we, we get called to the ministry for 20 or 30 years and we, we become weary dealing with wicked men and obstinate people. Just 20 or 30 years. What an example of patience and of faithfulness that he endured 60 to 70 years prophesying to an obstinate people whose, iron, whose neck was like iron and their faces like flint. They, they would not turn back to God and yet he continued to prophesy 60, 70 years. Years. It is a story of a distinguished man by name, by role, and by faithfulness, but by his character too. And I'm gleaning some of this from what I believe the scriptures would bear out that is involved in being a prophet of God. He was set apart, set apart unto God as a prophet. 
I think that comes along with it that he was righteous in terms of his relationship with God, blameless, obedient, and a devoted man. This is a story about that distinguished man. That's who he is. That's who's living this out, which makes it all the more stunning that God would come to this man and say to him, I want you to go and take a wife of prostitution. I want you to go and take to yourself as a wife a prostitute. And those people who think it's parable and those who, like myself, lean to think it was a real command and he was to obey that command in both cases, we are shocked at that. And so would his contemporaries might have been. And so, by the way, might Hosea have, have been. You want me to what? I've spent my life devoted and dedicating myself to you. I have been faithful in all things and, and have endured all these many years. And now you would have me join myself to a sinful, impure, defiled woman. That should be the reaction, which is exactly why I think God called him to do it. That's exactly what God wanted the people to feel. The outrage of it all. The indignant indignancy of it all. The scandal of it all. It's the story as well of an unworthy bride. Her name, Gomer itself, means to complete, to come to an end. I want you to enter into a relationship that has a dead end. It's, it's just an end. It's a, it's a dead end road, Hosea. I want you to embrace this woman and take her as your wife, this woman whose name is Gomer. Her father's name, it gives us in this text as well, was Diblaim. My understanding was that had the idea of fig cakes or a pile of figs. One author mentioned that it would have the taste of honey, but then the imagery of a pile seemed like to be disregarded and the figs had gone bad and they were putrid. That, her, her father's name was that and he bore this woman whose name meant end, dead end. I want you to go marry her, Hosea. She was unworthy because of her occupation. She was a prostitute. Some believe just a common prostitute. Others believe she was a, perhaps a cultic prostitute. They would, they would actually convince themselves that if they would go into the temples of Baal and, and they would engage in sexual activity that it would somehow provoke the gods uh, and, to, and to bring fruitfulness to the land. And so they had male and female cultic prostitutes. Some believe she may have been that some just a common, everyday prostitute. This is unthinkable, unthinkable to a godly man. Unthinkable. I mean, would anyone counsel your children today to search out and to go find a bride for your sons, mothers, and dads? Would you counsel your son to do that? Would you counsel your son to do that? None of us would. It's unthinkable. It also could have been the provocation for mockery of the prophet. <clears throat> in fact, Calvin and Henry and other commentators, I think that's why they pushed back on the idea of this happily, actually happening because they viewed that it would somehow have discredited the prophet. <laughs> yes, that's what I thought when I read it. Exactly, exactly. It would, it would produce a mockery of the prophet. It would, produce, it would produce those who would ridicule the prophet, a prophet of God. Messing with sinners. Sound familiar? 
Who was accused of dining with sinners and, 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 and rebellious people and accused of being a sinner himself? Who was it that they called Beelzebub? Shocking, right? Shocking. That's exactly what it would have produced in his life as well. How many people do you think would have immediately discredited his word now? He married a prostitute. That discredits him. We don't have to listen to him. That means everything he's told us is absolutely false. Why would God speak to us through a man who would enter into a union with a defiled woman like this? Why would God do that? So it potentially gave them reason to dismiss the very prophecy of Hosea. And this is the reason I think that Calvin and others lean in the direction that this was parabolic in some way, that it didn't actually follow through with it. But I believe it did for the very reasons that I'm citing. The scandalous love of God. Think about as well how it would subject this man to this grief. You almost feel that in one place. Uh, he says, uh, chapter 11, verse 8, listen to, listen to the emotions here. This is God speaking of his people, but you have to imagine that Hosea felt the same emotions. But he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart is turned over within me and all my compassion is kindled. He goes on to say, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. He talks of Israel in the first of those chapters as when he was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baal and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. So it subjected the prophet to great grief. And you can imagine some, some of you have been through, been through divorces and broken marriages and you know the heartache and the grief. And it seems like it will never, never, be, never be eased in any way. It, it just seems like the whole world is falling apart. How much more, especially if you, there was unfaithfulness or infidelity in that relationship, how much more would the righteous man of God, the prophet of God, grieve in his own heart? But thank God it is also a story of redemption. Look what he says here. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, verse 2, chapter 1, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And look at the name of these children. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. If you recall, Jehu was God's instrument in bringing judgment to the house of Ahab. In fact, they obliterated. Jezreel was where uh, the 70 sons of Ahab were beheaded, and their heads were piled up at the gate as a warning. It's where... It's where Naboth was murdered after they refused to give up his vineyard to Jezebel that she had him murdered. It's where Jezebel fell out the window and was eaten by dogs. Jezreel is a place of blood. And God says, out of this union, out of this marriage of Hosea and Gomer, I want you to name the first son that you have with this Gomer, Jezreel. Because it is there that I will avenge the blood of Jehu. All the blood of, of, of Israel spilled in that place. He says, 
I will avenge there. I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It's interesting there, not, not put an end to Israel, but the kingdom of the house of Israel. And definitely their kingdom was going away. They were going into captivity. He says, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, by the way, this same valley is where it's believed uh, uh, the battle of Armageddon will take place as revealed in Revelation. So it's all in the same area. So there's a prophetic tie-in to this as well. So he has this son, first son that he calls Jezreel. Then she conceived again and <clears throat> gave birth to a daughter. And the <clears throat> Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. So now she has this son Jezreel. Every time they, every time they call his name, they'll be reminded that God is bringing judgment upon the house of Israel, upon the kingdom. And now she has this daughter, and every time they call out, Lo-Ruhamah, where are you? Essentially, they are reminding themselves that the Lord is removing now compassion. He has been long compassionate. In fact, the 60, 70 years of Hosea's ministry was a demonstration of the long suffering of God Almighty towards his people. He's saying now, every time you call your daughter's name, you will be reminded that I'm removing now my compassion from Israel. Want to talk about grief? Not only does Hosea have to deal with the grief of his own relationship, but he also has to deal with the grief of understanding that now God's merciful hand is being taken away and moved away from his people Israel because of their rebellion. He assures in verse 7, But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will neither deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. So he's going to deliver Judah but not, but by divine means. So in verse 8, when she had weaned Lerahumah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. By the way, the Lo there is the negating of the name of the word or the, or the meaning of the name. He says, Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. So Ami means my people. Lo means not my people. So, so here's, a, here's a son as he's weaned and he comes to his dad and they call out, Loami, where are you? It's a reminder, not my people. In fact, I think some authors believe that this was doubly hurtful to Hosea because chapter 3 suggests that she had gone away from this marriage and returned to her prostitution and had conceived a child. And, and now she comes home and she's pregnant and she has this child and he says, name the child, not my people. It may be that he was thinking to himself, not my child. I married a prostitute, surprise, surprise, she, she's returned to her old trade. And now she's conceived. So it's heartbreaking to Hosea, surely, or perhaps, but certainly it's heartbreaking that it is a reminder that God is removing now his covenant or he's taking away, as it were, these are not my people. He assures us again, verse 10, of a future restoration, I think, verse 10 and 11, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them then, you are the sons of the living God. He talks about a reunification here. The sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So now they have three children. 
in this relationship. Possibly one, not, not biologically his, possibly they are, but their names themselves and even Gomer's name and the whole relationship is a, is a, has to be a grieving for Hosea. And it says this Hosea saying, saying to the brothers, or it may be more children that they had or she had. But he says here in verse chapter 2, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Rahumah. So he's, he's bidding them now, Ami, Ami and Rahumah, say this to your brothers. And he's telling them now, contend with your mother. It's almost as if he's saying, I didn't send you away. I didn't, I didn't abuse you. I didn't lead you astray. If you want to contend, don't contend with God or the prophet. Contend with your mother. Contend, he says, he repeats it in verse 2, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. I don't think that means that they weren't literally married. He's saying she is not carrying herself as my wife, nor is she submitting to me as her husband. She is rebelling against my, my taking her to be my wife. And he says, let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. In fact, he says, this is God speaking to Israel as well, but I will, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land and stay with, stay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, this is my assumption, is this is after their marriage and after she produced those children for Hosea. For she said, afterwards, I will go to my lovers. I will go to my lovers. Look what she says. Why? Why, does she, why is she so compelled to go back to her lovers? Possibly because they were able to provide for her far better in terms of her wants and her desires than the prophet was. Because she said, he says here, I will go back after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Here's a woman who'd sold both body and soul to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And so bound was she into that life that when the prophet of God takes her to himself and to his own hurt and to his own broken heart, she doesn't, she doesn't in one iota seem to sense the redemptive, merciful act of the prophet to rescue her from that. And she goes right back, leans back towards her old trade. And she sends herself back into that. Verse 6, he says, therefore, behold, I will hedge her way up with thorns. I want to make things difficult for her. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her pass. He, he tries to seem to prevent her from going back. She's leaning back towards those former customers and he's putting things in her way. Hosea must have been trying to stop her. Please, Omer, don't go back. Or, or maybe he kept her busy or he done something to try to discourage her from moving back to what she was so naturally drawn to. I will hedge her up and I'll build a wall against her so she cannot find her path. She'll pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. That's his plan. And she will seek them, but will not find them. I will, I will make sure she doesn't cut off the opportunity for her to get back to them. Then she will say, this is his hope. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. It doesn't seem as though she did. I don't know what he did to block her. 
I don't know what he did to discourage her, but it seems as though she went on grieving, the prophet says, and I think in the voice of God as well, verse 8, for she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety and her feast, her new moons and her Sabbath and all her festal assemblies. Hosea seems to be speaking in terms of Gomer, but he's speaking for God and God's messages to the people of Israel. So, so if you think about this, Israel was Gomer and God was Hosea. That's the imagery that he's creating here. I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which she said, these are my wages, which my lover has given me. And I will make them a forest and the beast of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the bells when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lover so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Let me finish from 14 and get to the first part of 3. Therefore, beholding, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give to her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth. You hear this redemptive desire here? If this is Hosea speaking of Gomer, these are the plans I will make to restore her to myself. Oh, that Gomer might be pure and devoted and a committed wife. Oh, that, oh, that there might be redemption for Gomer. So he's making the plans it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ish, which is my husband, and will no longer call me Baal, which literally was my master. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth so that they may not be mentioned by their names anymore. In that day, I will also make a covenant with them, with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth, I will betroth you to me forever. I love that phrase. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond declares the Lord, I will respond in the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and to the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her, which is what Jezreel means. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. What a plan. What a redemptive story. And that's why chapter 3 is so stunning. Because Hosea, in the midst of this planning in his own relationship with Gomer, he says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet she's an adulteress. I think he's talking to, I think he's talking to Hosea here. He's the man who loved the woman. Go again, love her again, Hosea. 
She's not deserving of that love. She is now an adulteress. She has gone outside. She's not just a prostitute and a fornicator that you've taken as a wife, Hosea. She has violated the marriage covenant and she has been unfaithful to you and possibly even bore a son to you. And she's gone away and she's fled back to her lovers. And oh, uh, Hosea, how you would want to redeem her and bring her back to yourself. Oh yes, Hosea, Hosea, that is a great motivation and a wonderful impulse you have. But she's left you. I read one commentator said, Hosea comes home from work one day and she's got her bags packed and she doesn't even pause to say goodbye. She just passes him on the way out the door. She's found another lover and she's much happier with him. And so what does God say? Does he say, good riddance, Hosea. Doesn't say that at all. He says, no, Hosea. Go love a woman who's loved by her husband. Don't forget, you loved her. Go love her again. Yes, she's an adulteress. Love her again. You, you realize, of course, that he had all the vindication and rights to declare her and the one she committed adultery with to be put to death by the law of God. God doesn't say, go run them down, find the man, put them to death to, to vindicate the holiness of God. No, he says to the prophet, go love her. Go love her. Go love the woman who is loved by her husband. That is scandalous. That is scandalous. But let me cut to the quick this morning, and we'll unfold this as we go through this series. But it is no less scandalous for God to send his son into this world to take his bride and to call that bride out from their prostitution. We have sold ourselves body and soul to everything in this world and everyone, everything coming and going that promises to satisfy the lust of this flesh. We were 10 times the prostitute that Gomer was. And even after he calls us to himself, we go out beyond him as the people of God. And we still find our satisfaction in our lovers in this world. And we satisfy the lust of our flesh with the things of this world. And we're adulterers. He called us as prostitutes, and when he promised to redeem us as a prostitute and purify us, we received his marriage covenant and then went outside of the marriage on him again and went out and became adulterers. And we were deserving of the sentence of death because our husband was God. And what does he say? Son, go prepare a bride for yourself. You know that's what John 14 is about, right? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. The imagery there is the, is the son preparing a home for his bride. And the, getting the father's approval. And he works and he works and he works. And he finally finishes the home. And he goes to the father and says, Father, is it complete? Can I bring my bride home? And the father says, Yes, son, go get your bride. Ephesians 5.27 says, Through his cross, through his sacrifice, through his enduring the grief of our sins, he presents to himself a bride, spotless in all of her glory. 
So if it, if it sounds to you scandalous and outrageous that God would call the prophet to marry a prostitute, think how much more scandalous and outrageous it is that God himself would come and take to himself prostitutes and they commit adultery against himself and yet he receives the just condemnation of that sin upon himself so that he might purify that once prostitute bride. That's you and I. You realize that, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. And, and this is even more striking to me, but this may be a surprise to you, but Israel, uh, America is not Israel. <laughs> America is not the church. He hasn't entered into a covenant relationship whereby he was relentless in his faithfulness to follow through with that covenant to America. He's, that's a covenant with the church. And there are members of the church in Israel and in America and he is bringing that bride and purifying that bride and bringing her home to himself. So think not that his work automatically guarantees the turnaround in our nation today. It may not. In fact, it may, it may be the means by which the church is identified by the fall of this nation. I don't see anywhere or any commentator that sees any reference to America in the book of Revelation. We may be long gone by then as a nation, but the church will be here. The bride will be here. He will have called her out of sin and he will be purifying her and he will call her out just like he's calling out his own people here when they become adulterous and they begin to find their satisfaction with things in this world. He will call them out and he loves us severely and mercifully. God is not a husband to be unfaithful to. The worst your husband can do here would be to divorce you. There's a whole lot more difficulty for the believer who is a, a bride of Christ in their rebellion against Christ. He will bring us to himself. In fact, all the prophecies of Hosea there, I think, are, is God's way of saying to Israel over and over again, whenever he's dealing with this, he says, thus it is with Israel. She has been an adulteress. She has prostituted herself. She has sought her lovers. She has taken what my providence has provided and assigned its origin to the Baal and sacrificed to them. She has kissed the Baals and engaged in a relationship with them unaware that it was my provision. It was my hand providing for all those things. And now to get her attention, I'm going to take those things away. And she's going to become a wilderness and she's going to be dry. We know that she was going to go into captivity now into captivity. Here's what I want to say to you today. Do you have an inkling of the extraordinary nature of the love of God for you? I spoke last week on the certainties that which we can be certain of in 2024. Do you know what motivates that? Do you know what assures that? This scandalous love of God. This outrageous love of God. If you belong to him, you are his bride. And he will not, he will not let your, your 
faulty infatuations with the things of this world keep you from him. He will hedge you in. He will keep you from getting to your lovers. He will throw all kinds of preventions in your way from finding your satisfaction there. All for the purpose of causing you to understand that it is in him. It's in him. That's extraordinary love. That's why I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 13. You want to see what that looks like in practice? Look at Hosea's love for Gomer. How many of you would have put up with a spouse, husband or wife, who had treated you in the way that she was treating Gomer here? And all of his friends would have gathered around and said, man, you're justified. You need to get rid of her. She is trouble. She is a dead end. Her name means dead end. And we would have pat ourselves on the back and said, I tried. Man, I'm thankful that God doesn't do that with us. He's not just trying. He will complete that work of bringing us to himself as his bride. And that is a wonderful encouragement for the new year. It is, there are certainties in the new year, but they're as certain as the nature of God himself is. And God, John says, is love. Amen. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as much as we are shocked with this command to Hosea, Lord, I pray this morning that we'll understand that the point was that the people who had prostituted themselves and become adulterers would be equally shocked that you would love such a people as that. And all this so that we might fathom the depths of the love of Christ. Romans 28 says that we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And Father, that is a steadfast enduring love and Lord I pray that that just as Hosea was speaking to the people of Israel God's people today we would hear God speaking to us the church this is not a message to the nations this is not a message to America this is not a message to Europe or the or Asia or Africa this is a message to the people of God and Lord I pray that you would call us back to yourself Lord, thank you that you have promised that in Christ and by the Spirit you are presenting by sanctification yourself, the bride, the church, in all of its glory, with all spots to be removed someday and, and for her to be a glory to her head who is Christ. Lord, in these moments of invitation, I pray that you would show us our promiscuity, spiritually speaking now, Father. I pray that you would identify for us in our hearts those lovers to whom we have gone, those relationships with things or persons that we have elevated above our relationship with you. The church in Revelation was warned that it had left its first love. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, if there are believers here who have left their first love and have gone away as Gomer to live with their lovers, that you might call us back by your spirit this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake and his glory, our head, our husband. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.